Philosopher James K. Smith says that conversations about spirituality should feel less like imparting truth to a friend from on high and more like, like solidarity amidst struggle and transparent overcoming as a kind of fellow traveler. Basically, it's like, oh, so you've experienced that too? So you know what that's like? Today on the podcast, Jamie is joined by Miranda Kennedy, supervising editor on NPR's Morning Edition, where she leads political coverage, manages the show's editorial content, and plans stories for that daily program heard by nearly 15 million listeners nationwide. Miranda previously spent five years reporting from India. Jamie teaches philosophy at Calvin College, and he's the author of six books, the newest being On the Road with St. Augustine, Real-World Spirituality for Restless Hearts. This book connects the perennial wisdom of Augustine to the self-consumed, prosperous yet anxious moment that characterizes our late modern age. One of the reasons why we see such rampant anxiety amongst emerging generations is because, in a way, we haven't given them any substantive vision of the good to live into other than unfettered autonomy and you get to write your own story. You be you. Which sounds great until you actually try to enact that without any guide. And a new national survey from Pew demonstrates that's not just a one-off. In the last decade, belief among U.S. Christians has fallen by 12 points from 77% of the American population in 2009 to 65% today. As you might expect, old people believe more than young people, while over 8 in 10 members of the silent generation are Christian and three-quarters of baby boomers, less than half of millennials are. Today, 4 in 10 millennials describe themselves as religious nuns. Among Latino Americans, there's been a 10-point decline in the percentage who are Catholic, now 47%, and we'll link to the report in the show notes with lots more detail. But if America has historically been exceptional when it comes to remaining deeply religious as a wealthy nation, that's been changing in our lifetime, and particularly since 1990. Even if there is still spiritual capital in the bank, and there is, every week 384,000 U.S. congregations open their doors to worship attendees, the vector is falling, not rising. So regardless of where you fall on the religious spectrum, it really is worth chewing carefully on the questions Jamie and Miranda raised today, rooted in Jamie's inspiring new work on Augustine of Hippo, author, philosopher, church father, visionary, and fellow traveler. Enjoy the conversation. Thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for coming. I'm so glad that we all get to have a chat. Yeah. So I wanted to start out just by asking who you wrote the book for, who you were talking to in Mm. your head when you obviously you've read Augustine and you've engaged with the themes that he engages with for many years and who was the audience that you wanted to introduce him to? Yeah, I I think the audience I really want to introduce him to is probably a sector of the population who A, haven't heard of him and B, what they know of him. If they have, they're kind of skeptical and resistant. And yet I want to make the case to them that in fact, Augustine knows them more than they realize. So I, I would say I'm, I'm kind of hoping that this could reach 
people live in DC, people who live in New York, people who live these lives of aspiration and climbing and in David Brooks language, people who've climbed the first mountain and got to the top and realized, hmm, that's it. That's all. Or, or experienced a kind of emptiness there. I actually think Augustine reaches them. So it's not just religious folks. I think it's actually people who maybe are exhausted or disappointed by what they have been trying to forge in terms of a meaningful life and then realized it was more vapid than they had hoped mm -hmm. and maybe are open to the crazy idea of listening to a saint. That's kind of the hope. I mean, obviously, I also think that Augustine is a companion for people who already think of themselves as believers, as already think of themselves as Jesus followers. But I actually think in some ways he's even more interesting for that other sort of penumbra of which I think there's just a growing cadre of people who are sort of wondering about the alternatives to what we've been hosting. I, I don't know. There definitely is a growing... That is a growing group, right? Like religious affiliation is constantly declining, yeah. which doesn't mean that belief in God is necessarily constantly declining. And people are always like quick to say that those two things are not necessarily affiliated. And you may have seen the Democratic Party came out saying that the religiously unaffiliated was their largest religious group mm. of adherents to the Democratic Party. So it's even being kind of grouped in terms of Voting sectors, I think people consider. And uh, yeah, it was that group that I felt you were speaking to. And as a former member of that group, as mm. somebody who knows a lot mm -hmm. of people, I, I was just curious to see. I mean, it's clear that there are people who don't want to say that they are cutting out the idea of God. And I just wondered what your experience with that yeah. group of people was. Well, and that is such a motley crew in a way, right? Sure. So if you imagine how people get into that demographic, there are many, many paths. On the one hand, one sector of that community and that demographic that really interests me are people who maybe have never been religious in any institutional affiliation sense, and yet find themselves kind of surprised that they're looking for and sympathetic to voices that are talking about transcendence and things like that. And and in that sense, I'm even like, a symptom is like the attention that Russell Brand's podcast gets, right? Or that Jordan Peterson is a thing would not excite me generally, except that I do think it's a symptom of a certain kind of hunger, maybe, that people have. But then I do think another sector of that increasingly unaffiliated demographic is people who are leaving. And I, I would say I, I'm also hoping this book might reach some people who think they are on their way out of Christianity and to be very honest are probably leaving forms of Christianity that I would too, <laughs> but that have never actually encountered a form of Christianity like Augustine sort of represents. And in that sense, it's like, well, just maybe listen and entertain Augustine before you stop believing and see if it doesn't paint a very different picture of what faith looks like for you. I definitely hope that's one of the audiences as well. Yeah. What has been your experience? Are there people who you've kind of been able to talk to along the way who fit into that group? I wonder if they're open to it because I, I have a, like a long line of skeptical and really interested questioning about how to draw people in, you know, how mm. Christians draw people in to the Christian world who are 
resistant to it in varied ways, like you say, and many of the people that you mentioned in the second category would perhaps be angry or disillusioned and yeah. have had bad experiences in the church. Do you find that when you sort of talk with them about the ways that the saint can speak to their experience that they're receptive? Yeah. I mean, one of probably my most significant laboratory in this regard is teaching undergraduates, which is my day job. And even though I'm doing that at a Christian liberal arts university, we are kind of a form of a Christian university where we get the people who would never dream of going to certain kinds of schools. And so we're like this safe because we maybe sort of break out of the mold a little bit. So a lot of people sometimes come and they're actually on their way out of a form of fundamentalism that they might have grown up with that they're Mm. bristling against. I see two things. One is folks for whom their experience of Christianity is of a Christianity that is about as old as their youth pastor. Do you know what I mean? It's this kind of freelance, non-denom, Ocurrent form of Christianity, which then has also been fairly restrictive and just feels kind of isolated. It's its own little island, and they had no idea of what we would call Catholicity. They had no idea that mm-hmm. there was like this rich tradition. And so, in my experience, young people who are like, look, I can't join the Glee Club for Jesus sort of thing, or who are really resistant to this very, very predictable piety, if you give them the ancient rhythms and disciplines and practices of a Catholic Christianity, they're like, oh, wait, you mean I don't have to make this up? It's not on, you know, they can sort of, they find grooves to live Mm in. Mm -hmm. The other thing, and I try to address this quite directly in the book, I think a lot of those young people are really angry that the Christian communities they grew up in never told them that God cared about justice. Do you mean they thought God cared about the rapture? But nobody ever told them that he cares about widows, orphans, and strangers. And so they come to care for widows, orphans, and strangers, for the marginalized, for the oppressed. And what they need to hear is a form of Christianity that says, yeah, that's at the heart of suffering and service and sacrifice. And when you tell them, hey, I know maybe your church that you grew up in in Sunday school never talked about this, but let me introduce you to this vast tradition of a form of Christianity that's all about that. And then it's like, oh, why did no one ever tell me about this? Mm-hmm. And I think Augustine, you know, Augustine's passion and advocacy for sanctuary, for people who were facing the death penalty, for you see him doing all this kind of work, and it's really a testament. So that's maybe one thread in the Christian world toward different, more authentic, richer, more liturgically reinforced, you know, more substantive alternative. But there is also, as you were beginning to say earlier, this sense that the culture more broadly, that people in Washington, D.C. or in New York are part of this age of authenticity, of undemanding self-esteem, you know, define your own your own story. Will it work or will it not work? And you said in a lecture the other night, you know, that in today's culture, I think we might be surprised how many people are open to boundaries, the yearning for guardrails. What's that about? Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure the ethnographic reports here are mixed. All I would say is I do think we see enough evidence in this cultural moment of people being kind of exhausted by the myth 
of limitless possibility and self-invention. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, I, I think we, one of the reasons why we see such rampant anxiety amongst emerging generations is because in a way we haven't given them any substantive vision of the good to live into other than unfettered autonomy and you get to write your own story. You be you, which sounds great until you actually try to enact that without any guide, without any map, without any sense of, of a destination or a story to live into. And I think, you know, this is one of the subtexts of our current cultural moment is a unique openness of young people to join communities that ask a lot of them. I think it partly explains why there's gravitation to all kinds of sort of identity-shaping Communities. I think it partly explains white nationalism, for example. It's like, give me something to belong to. Give me something that gives me a story. What I think I'm really impressed by in young people today is their willingness to actually live into an expectation that they serve the other, which means setting aside their self. And yet it's precisely in giving themselves away that they find they also give themselves. I think that's an important thread. And I'm not a prognosticator. But, you know, there's a lot of religious folks and Christian folks who think the sort of narrative of a post-Christian secularized society is just downward <laughs> spiraling despair. I don't buy that. I actually think you already see signs of kind of cracks in the secular, of hints that the story doesn't just keep going on the way it has, that people are sort of exhausted by what we entertained for two generations as the good life. And they're, they're saying, mm, this is not working for us you know it won't it won't ever be universal yeah and it's not something you can prove like basically somebody has to live into the emptiness to then be open to the possibility it was exactly augustine's experience you know it was when augustine gets to milan it's precisely because he achieves everything he was looking for and is still disappointed that that becomes the gateway for him to entertaining an alternative yeah obviously the flip side of the christian fear that the world is descending into secularism is the something that I hear all the time, which is that, you know, this is clearly a progression. Like, we have learned enough science, we have seen enough rational thinking that we have now grown, and we are slowly growing away from religion, which restricts us, is unrational, unscientific, against everything that man and woman has moved into. And I thought it was pretty clear that your book bucks against that by saying that Augustine went through the exact same journey that many people, you know, are going through. He had his own kind of experience. So I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit, like maybe talk about his own journey yeah, a little bit more. It's crazy. And this might be a hard analog for some people to get a hold of. But we know that Augustine actually spent probably about a decade in his 20s as part of this group called the Manichaeans. We throw around the adjective Manichaean really irresponsibly. But... <laughs> Good and evil. Good and evil. <laughs> yeah, right? Whenever somebody yeah. distinguishes good and evil, it's like, oh, they're being Manichaean. But one of the things that's, and the Manichaeans are like weird, weird Gnostic sect. However, what's intriguing that what we can learn from it is for Augustine, they were the enlightened ones. 
the Manichaeans thought they were the ones who were the scientists. Now, it was the science of stars, right? And they were, they thought that they had overcome myth and achieved enlightenment, and therefore they were the select few. It's the exact analog of how Richard Dawkins thinks of himself. Do you know what I mean? And the brights of Daniel Dennett and things like that. What intrigues me is, well, what Augustine says is, well, there's still a lot of trust involved in this story because you are still entrusting yourself to someone and some story because not all of us are doing the science. Do you know what I mean? So there's, there's a, often it's about associating myself with a story of enlightenment and seeing through things that I'm looking for. But then what intrigues me today is, I mean, I think new atheism, R Richard Dawkins has a new book out when I was in the UK last week, and it always just feels like a very shrill last gasp of the Enlightenment. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's loudest precisely because they're angry that it's not winning. You know, it's not actually becoming the dominant. What intrigues me in the critique of that is all the people who have no stake in religious belief come along and say, look, you guys are overshooting here. You're making scientific claims for things that are just not possible by empirical evidence. And so pointing out the limits of what we can know empirically is its own sort of opening and gateway to entertaining the mystery that is Christian faith. I mean, part of what worries me, too, is Christians who think they can figure it all out. I'm always worried about forms of Christianity that think they've got it all nailed down like a science. And Augustine pushes back on that, too, I think. And you had flagged the article that Mark Lilla wrote in the New York Times about Augustine several years ago, if I recall, where he, he describes this idea about that sort of search for knowledge as itself a bit of an escape or a bit of a, a last gasp, a bit of an effort that would be ultimately futile. I think he says his quest for knowledge was really a dodge to ex avoid experiencing the overwhelming anxiety and despair that he felt. And whether that's the Manichaean community cult that he was a part of, philosophical search for truth, sort of physical pleasures and sex, there's this sort of craving. But you, you say that in the book that his, his story takes a kind of an, an arc that there's a bounce, a bottoming out? Well, yeah, so I think what happens is, maybe to build the bridge with Miranda's question, too, is one of the other limits of this kind of scientistic story that we tell ourselves is it does not offer very many resources to make sense of the monsters we are inside. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it just... And if Augustine offers anything today, it is just the most potent, introspective transparency and awareness of my conflictedness. Do you know what I mean? In which I think he just tells the secrets that we all know about ourselves. And in that sense, what Augustine experiences, the arc, if you will, that Augustine experiences is basically looking for love in all the wrong places, right? He tries to satisfy this inbuilt ultimate longing for meaning, significance, and transcendence. But he, he looks for it in phenomena that we all know, in ambition, in achievement, in success, in sex, in power and influence. And Augustine's experience is interesting for us, I think, because he's kind of honest about the ultimate failure of each of those. And you, by the way, you can go a long time and try a lot of options and think, oh, well, maybe this is it or maybe this is it. So, okay, I was wrong about yeah, this one. A lot of a lot of options there. Absolutely. Seekers looking yeah. to try other things. And you can also numb yourself, you can kind of talk yourself into saying, oh no, I'm living the dream. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. At the same time, what all Augustine tries to do, someone like an Augustine 
someone like a Pascal, you know, these kinds of figures are, they're just trying to sort of jolt you into just being paused for one moment. So you look inside and you kind of ask yourself, am I really though? <laughs> you know, and it's, and again, it's not the kind of thing that you can sort of argue people into. You just meet them in that possible vulnerability. And then basically it's like, oh, so you've experienced that too? So you know what that's like? Like an I, AA, what was it, an AA coach more than a judge? Yes, like that's that? exactly right. So he's, basically Augustine tells you his story and you're like, oh, so I'm not the only one. How'd you get out of this? What was the path out? And th that's why I think Augustine's the sort of an intriguing co-pilgrim in a way. I love the theme of an emigre. Mm. And I thought it was very interesting how you pick up on, obviously, the age-old kind of like the road is life, the journey is it, man, I'm really, this is all I need, versus the idea of Augustine's journey, his particular journey. And it seemed as though you were saying that it's almost easier for people who themselves have lived through a punishing journey, mm. a journey against their will, to experience and understand that particular kind of journey where you have a sense of coming home rather than the road being enough. Yes. Is that, yes. Is that, yeah, was that what yeah. you were saying? Yeah, well, maybe, some... and think of it as... Yeah, I do think this is really important. I think what Augustine paints a picture of is what we could call a refugee spirituality. So on the one hand, that appreciates there is this sort of inbuilt human dynamic of the journey, right? Of the quest, of looking for someplace, hoping to arrive, ultimately hoping to be welcomed home. For Augustine, though, what's intriguing is what he thinks is the inbuilt hunger of the human heart isn't just a return to home, right? It's not just this circular journey of getting back to where I was. It's not just recovery. We are actually made to long for a country we've never been to. And when we would get to that country called joy, he says, you've never been there before. And then you get there and you're like, I'm home. And, and what's also important is somebody welcomes you and says, Welcome home. <laughs> you know, like you, you know you were made for that shore. And in that sense, I think you're right that one of the reasons why Augustine adopts this metaphor is because he also gets how arduous the journey is, how tenuous, how vulnerable we are in that journey. And so it's much more like pilgrimage language, of course, is fine. I mean, who's going to critique pilgrimage language? Except the pilgrimage language often can sound a little too safe because, you know, I go to the Camino, I have this great spiritual experience, and then I get to come home to the safety. Whereas the experience of the refugee is setting out and not knowing, right? I mean, there's a hope, but I can't go back because of the dangers that are there that I'm trying to escape. And on the other hand, there's no guarantee. There's just the hope of getting to the other side. And I, I think that gets at this spiritual condition. And maybe like you say, it might be one of the reasons why it's people who know suffering, who have the least illusions about their dependence, right? Or, or the gift of dependence. I think it's those of us, especially in Western societies, who enjoy such unmitigated comfort. And then on top of that, the people who've achieved such remarkable success that we start to buy this story that's told us about our own kind of resourcefulness, invincibility, 
and our desire for comfort. And so it's almost harder for God to pierce that. Whereas people who genuinely know suffering live transparently and porously, right? They, they get the openness and vulnerability of that. But that openness and vulnerability is also the capacity for the divine to make its way in. We encase ourselves. This is kind of Charles Taylor language. We, we encase ourselves in these buffered cells because we can think we can take care of everything. And the divine keeps knocking mm. on on the door of that. Which yeah. is why it's quite amazing that Augustine himself did have his revelation when he had achieved the height of everything yes. and was not vulnerable. Exactly. And yes, he was in a new place, but he was there as many successful people are in a place totally. to do his thing. and It's be- like 80% of the D.C. population, isn't it? It's people who aren't from here, got here, from made York. it. You're listening from New York. Yes, and New York and L.A. I mean, these cities of aspiration are so perennial, right? And Augustine gets there, and it's and in a way, what's remarkable is that, in a sense, it's precisely his success that gets pierced. And I think a lot of people can identify with that. It's just they wouldn't maybe have had opportunity to consider the alternative that Augustine did. We should also remember, too, I mean, what happens there is Augustine's an African who's now moved to the center of the Roman Empire at that time in Milan. And as a kind of provincial outsider, he feels marginalization even as he's achieved, even once he's at the center. And what is really astounds him and wins the day is that Ambrose, Bishop Ambrose, he says, welcomes him as a kind father. And now you realize, oh, even though Augustine is this intellectual giant, there's something deeply affective and existential that he's also looking for there. Mm-hmm. And that's what where he's met. Augustine is both intellectually convinced by Christianity and then to not put it too mushily, but he's kind of loved into the kingdom of God you know, by moment, Ambrose. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if I could press into that just a little bit, Jamie, because that moment, you know, conjures up a little bit the famous image of the prodigal son yes. returning to a father, not his father, but to a father. And in a way, you know, you got, you know, I remember David Brooks did an article a long time ago, or a conversation with Sarah Pulliam Bailey about how he thought Augustine was the smartest person that had ever lived period, you know, (laughs) and, you know, he described in vivid detail his story and ultimately opens himself to grace in a way that's attractive, only possible to uh, sort of appreciate because it's the story. But I guess I want to ask you, do you think that sort of works better with people who are a little more like the prodigal son, that is coming from either moral heritage or Christian heritage or Jewish heritage Mm. or, you know, religious upbringing, leaving with some, you know, cachet a little bit, wandering for a while and having some bottoming out experience that ultimately, you know, opens the door to their true uh, belief in coming alive. Or, as you said, I'm prompted by your comment earlier about justice, is it equally as accessible, his story, to the person who experienced incredible hardship and ultimately is still trying and striving to come home? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Augustine only tells his story because he thinks it's just one more example of the human story. And he thinks every human story is a version of the parable of the prodigal son, right? He, think, he thinks, in a way, every human being is born on the run. And I think the dynamics will be different. You know, case by case, it's going to look different. But I think people who've known no religious heritage at all would still have an experience of being welcomed and a sense of coming to who they are supposed to be 
when they open themselves up to God. I can see how for somebody who is like sort of raised in religious traditions and communities, goes off like Augustine did to Vegas and, you know, blows everything and then is sort of ruined and that's their opening to return. You can see how that would be more intense. I mean, I think one of the things that's worth noting in all of these cases, and it's certainly Augustine's case, you realize that despite the, this giant intellect, right? And I, I agree. He's just, it's astounding. At the end of the day, it was humility that was the entry. Do you know what I mean? Like, like at the heart of the Augustinian vision is the fact that you can't think your way out of the prison you've made for yourself. And you can't think your way to God. It's not my intellectual accomplishment that gets me there. If anything, it's my intellect having the good sense to open itself up and humble itself and receive a word that comes from elsewhere. And that that's why Augustine thinks pride is kind of the seed of all sin. And that's very hard for us. Modernity has made us confident in our autonomy and self-powered. <laughs> that's not a word, but you, you know what I mean? Like, and I think that's probably the hardest hurdle. But it's also why you really have to come to the end of yourself to be opened up to this. It's exactly why I do, I do think the dynamics of addiction and recovery are a very, very powerful analog to, to what Augustine experienced. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you you refer to that to that particular experience, you know, somebody to the particular experience of having had a kind of crushing loss or a crushing addiction, and you refer to the people who, as you say, have experienced deep suffering. But it it seems to me that you also seem to be saying in this book that it is sort of the human condition to wander and to long for home. But I would say most people like that I know don't know that they're longing for home. Like the, I think that right now the call to wander, define your own life, sort of choose your own path mm -hmm. and experiment with the transcendent along the way as you experiment with many other things is very, very strong. Yeah. So, yeah, I just wondered if you can talk a little bit more about the kind of the pull toward yeah. home that you seem to think yeah. is underneath the wandering. Yeah, I mean, it's it's rooted in the belief and claim that every human creature is has a natural desire for the supernatural, is one way to put it. But it's another reason why—so the book is called On the Road with St. Augustine for a reason, because the Kerouac on the road is a backstory here, right? And that philosophy that the road is life, that is the Kerouac philosophy that we've all inherited, even if you've never read this novel, right? Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I think that's what's in the water. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of Cheryl Strayed, wild, you know, that eat, pray, love is about, you know, the journey is the destination kind of thing. What's interesting, there's this, this great passage in Kerouac's On the Road where Dean and Sal run into this Nebraska farmer and he says, you boys going to get somewhere or just going? Mm -hmm. Sal looks back on and he says, that was a damn good question. <laughs> you know, we, we didn't know the answer. And so I think it's about realizing... That's also interesting because I think there is a certain amount of shame that many people have about just going just for the sake of it because people are aware that 
Jack Kerouac was, you know, that that book is 40 years old. Right. I don't know, it's a bit outdated. <laughs> yeah. So it feels cliche. To... Yeah, it feels cliche <laughs> yeah. and not that yeah. intelligent to just be having a general wander right. around in circles right. in your life. Right. And there's also a way in which it might be a remarkable privilege to be able to do that, too. And that, I think, sets in its own kind of embarrassment about it. My take is, yes, I get why and how in a secular age we keep trying to convince ourselves that the road is life. Augustine's wager, my wager is I just don't think that's sustainable. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I don't... Now, that doesn't mean... Again, it's not the sort of thing that's demonstrable. It's more like you have to experience the limits of that possibility. I think our biggest problem, or one of our biggest problems, is we have entire industries that are bent on keeping us distracted from ever asking the question. Do you know what I mean? Like, let, like let's like look. Augustine wrote Confessions without without an iPhone. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> right. So there's there's a sense in which we live in a culture that is so incessantly distracted, precisely to numb us from having to ask ourselves, "Is the road life?" You know, and that's why. I mean, to be honest, it's precisely why for Augustine, philosophy was sort of a preamble and a gateway drug for him, because the philosophers are like, "What are you doing? What?" What are you doing? This, this is why we require philosophy of undergrads, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it's supposed to be the one time where people are like, what the frick are you doing with your life? It was a drug for you too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And look, it doesn't always take, do you know, like mm-hmm. there's just, there's something yeah, in Augustine's account. Answer. Right. That's right. <laughs> but it was there, interesting, you know, to hear John Haidt say on this podcast that in his classrooms at NYU, you know, there's a little sticker in the, in the, in the restroom where you can call an administrator and levy a complaint if you are uncomfortable with something that was said in the classroom. Growth of administrators, he says, like, since 09, there have been this flood of hospitalizations for teens oh, and preteen yes. girls in particular because of the, the high regard to protect and secure your own image, you know, and that it's, it's a real problem. It's certainly a crack in the Yes, system. yes, exactly. And, and that's why I do wonder if our culture is starting to experience the unsustainability of it all, right? I, I don't mean to then say, oh, now Christianity is this magical solution. I mean, I think it's really important to remember that for Augustine, Christianity is not a solution, right? It's just you get a compass. You know where you're going. It doesn't take you off the road. It just changes how you travel. And it actually is an invitation to its own kind of suffering. But now it's like, directed suffering. You you sort of know you're suffering alongside and you're suffering and you're called to sacrifice because you've actually devoted yourself to this remarkable paradoxical God who actually sacrificed himself for us. I mean, that's, that's a one of a kind picture of what it is to be related to the divine that I think that's what Augustine found in Christianity. Yeah, I wanted to go back for a second to the Mm. busyness because that really spoke very sadly to me. I loved your paragraph describing the busyness. Mm. You could Mm. read it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sure, sure. (laughs) Of course, the most popular way to quell this unsettling sense of not-at-homeness is by trying to make ourselves at home in the world, even if that looks like mostly distracting ourselves from the unsettling fact of our alienation. As Heidegger would put it, in a way he learned from Augustine, 
I'm absorbed by everydayness. I give myself over to those producers of bustling activity, he called it, who are more than happy to take the burden of selfhood off my hands. So we learn to forget our alienation by letting ourselves be taken over by the distractions and entertainments and chatter of the world. We trade one sort of self-alienation for another that gives the illusion of homey comfort. You belong here is the lie told to us by everyone from Disney to Vegas. We try to cover up not knowing who we are by letting everyone else sell us an identity or at least a distraction from needing one. I found it especially compelling there because it seems like you believe that there's a a way in which everyone who is simultaneously allowing themselves to be distracted and also aware that they're being distracted, that there is some part of Hmm. the human condition which is actually like, I know that I shouldn't be texting while watching TV and being like, whoa, I'm so busy, I just can't think about anything deep, but is also aware that they don't want to think about something deep. That There's a self-awareness. There's a like reflexivity a about our own lack of reflexivity in that regard. And that welcome to being human. In other words, that is only possible for humans. It's a little bit like Heidegger also said, so only humans can be lonely, right? Because we know that we're actually called to be in relationship. And this is where, I mean, I want, I don't want to point this out in a judgmental way, right? Like I, I'm not haughtily pointing my finger. I'm saying, This is the world we made for ourselves. We basically built our own chamber of distraction. And in that sense, we are our own prisoners. And in a way, the opening, maybe maybe the best hope here is to just pierce this chamber of incessant numbing distraction so that people are unsettled. I think maybe one of the hard things to realize about the Augustinian picture is for somebody's life to be upset and unsettled is the gateway to grace. Right. Do you know, like it's it's not going to be this clean. You don't get to just sort of add Jesus. You have to realize, oh, no, no, no. There's many of us are going to have to come through a certain traumatizing of the comfy confines that we've surrounded ourselves with. And maybe the calling of the church is to be a kind of people who can be alongside people in that situation. Do you know what I mean? Like to not be there with the answers as much as to say, I see that you're grappling with something big and it hurts. Let me just sit for a while with you here in that. That's kind of what, it's a beautiful picture when Augustine has his own conversion experience in that famous garden. I just love it that his friend Olypius is just kind of like, he's watching all of this go down and he doesn't interfere. He lets it happen. He loves Augustine enough to let it happen. It's like, I know you have to go through this, but he also doesn't leave, right? He's like, I'm present. I think that's a beautiful picture of what ultimately is a communal longing that we have to. I think it's really interesting that you would pit against tech and <laughs> Twitter and a whole bunch of distractions, politattainment that just rises to our, our particular oh, interest based on the last the last viewing against the fear that we might be alone. And I thought it was really interesting in the book, Jamie, that you you had that line about with invasion of grace behind him, something in him said enough. At some point he turned, but he did turn not at the counsel of a friend in particular. And I wonder, you know, you also cite David Foster Wallace, his speech at Kenyon. What is your best piece of advice for a relationship with a friend who is in this journey and has not turned the corner yet 
in terms of how to be a present. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's accompaniment is just underappreciated in the sense of, I think to be a friend in these kinds of contexts is to love someone enough to unsettle, but also love enough to be present on the other side of that and through the experience. I know that sounds a little bit vague, but I do think it mostly looks like meeting people in a very sympathetic place. And what does Augustine do? Augustine shares his own story. What is the confessions other than the almost unmasking and unveiling of this bishop who already has all this power and influence when he writes it, and he takes the risk of being vulnerable and says, let me tell you my story. And here's all the ugliness of my story. And to it's such a leveling of the playing field. And I, I think the kind of picture of the Christian life that Augustine offers is never one where, oh, I've got the secret. Let me dole out a little bit of the secret to you. It's more like, here's the adventure I'm on with a God who's called me and found me. Let me tell you what that's been like. You want to come? And it's that sort of co-pilgrimage, I think, that we can embody in a way. Yeah, Yeah. it seems like much of the book is also an invitation to another kind of journey, which, you know, we've spoken about the one toward home, but maybe you can talk a little bit about how that second part of the journey was for Augustine and what lessons you hope it offers. Yeah, I mean, so for Augustine, the Christian life is still... A pretty arduous trek. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you have to remember that there's no magical arrival. You know, baptism is not like you don't get to fast forward to kingdom come. And so for Augustine, what characterizes the Christian life is what I call a deep sense of spiritual realism. This is what I love about Augustine. Maybe it's because I'm a weak person, but what I, I love <laughs> is, you know, here's a saint who is still very honest with us about the temptations he's still suckered by. Do you know what I mean? Like the mm -hmm. part of what I love is Augustine as a very public figure and, and we can identify with that. He says, you know, the temptation I'm still most lured by is the praise of men. Do you know what I mean? I love it when people love me, right? And pay attention to me and tell me. And so he but says he says that. Yes, and he, he admits, admits it. That. Exactly. Because then he says, well, should I not do good? Should I not be excellent just so that I can avoid this temptation? He's like, no, that wouldn't. So what do I do? I confess. If you ask Augustine, are you doing this for God or for yourself? Augustine's answer is yes. Right? Like he just, I love it that he lives into that tension. And I think we can, we can all identify with that. And it might sound an odd way to put it, but I, what I find liberating about Augustine's account of the Christian life is he thinks we should have no illusions about purity. Right? We should have no illusions that we are the ones who figured it out, that our community has got it all together. And instead, we should be people who confess, <laughs> you know, who are vulnerable, who are open, and are hoping above all in the grace of God. It's so hard almost to read someone like Augustine from our vantage point where almost all forms of spirituality are forms of self-help. Because for Augustine, the radical truth here is this is about dependence on grace and mercy that comes from outside of us. So what does it look like to live dependent on that? And yet that becomes its own sort of liberation. That becomes its own sort of freedom to escape the kind of prosperity gospels of perfection and live into the messiness of this spiritual realism. 
Jamie, thanks so much for coming over. Miranda. Thanks so much. Thanks this so has much. been great. Thanks so much, Miranda and Josh both. This was great fun. Thanks for your interest. Faith Angle exists to open connections between leading journalists, scholars, and clerics. Thanks for listening.